following message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. Well, here we are at the beginning of a new, uh, a new adventure in Scripture. If you would turn to the book of Matthew, first book of the New Testament. This is interesting to me because we just finished the last book of the Old Testament. And now we're going, uh, we're skipping the 400 years of silence. The Lord did not speak to His people. And we're moving on to Matthew's Gospel. Now let me tell you a little bit about Matthew's Gospel, just briefly. Uh, many people believe that Matthew's Gospel was the first of the four Gospels written. Others tend to believe it was Mark, because Mark is much more brief. And so there's a discussion among scholars about, well, was Mark's written first and it was brief, and Matthew came along and expanded on it, or was Matthew's uh, expanded version such that it was, and Mark came along after and said, well, I don't need to repeat all those things, I'll be more brief. And so there's a, a back and forth a little bit, but all the evidence that we have amassed over years of study, uh, historians and uh, biblical scholars, we think our best idea is that the Gospel of Matthew was actually written down at some time between uh, the mid 40s BC and the mid 50s BC, or, I mean AD. So, so if you yeah, if you go uh, mid 40s to mid 50s, you think about Jesus and his earthly ministry. So he uh, lived and died and rose. And you think of that around 35, roughly, 35 A.D. And so Matthew began to be inspired and write this gospel 10 to 20 years after those events. So uh, it's very interesting to, to remember that in uh, the context of what we're talking about and also the fact that Matthew's audience was largely Jewish. And so you'll see... Throughout this gospel, you'll see some things that kind of lend themselves more to a Jewish audience. The, the things he says, the way he says them, and the things he concentrates on. Now, all that to say this. Why on earth would Matthew start off, other than the fact that he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these words, why would he start off with Ancestry.com? Why would he start with a genealogy and give you all these names of who was the father of whom and all this. And, and here's why. Why is the genealogy of Jesus so important? Well, Leon Morris would say that it begins with a genealogy. It seems to us a strange way to begin a book, but the Jews were very interested in records of descent. And so Jesus' genealogy shows us that He is of a royal descent, which means something, because Jesus is the king, right? And so you read in other places, other scholars, that Matthew's genealogy answered the important question that a Jew would rightfully ask about someone who claimed to be the king of the Jews. Is he a descendant of David through the rightful line of succession? So Matthew demonstrates right up front, yes, yes he is. He is in that 
that kingly line of David. So what's the purpose? What's the purpose of this gospel? Now you know the word gospel. You know what it means? Good news. Good story. Good news. That's the literal meaning of this word. So Matthew's main purpose is to prove to his Jewish readers that Jesus really is their Messiah. He quotes the Old Testament often. He, he often says this, was, this took place to fulfill this prophecy and he quotes the Old Testament. He wants to connect those things so that there will be no question in his audience's mind nor in our minds today, there should be no question Jesus is exactly who he said he was. He is the Messiah. He is the rightful king. He's the main character in Matthew's presentation of the gospel. And the opening verse connected him back to two great covenants in Jewish history. If you look at verse 1 before I read here, Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So he immediately connects to those two covenants. So when we go through this gospel, and granted we're going to start with this genealogy today and look at the first 17 verses and talk about what that means and then why it is important to us. But as we go through this gospel, we should remember this. There is only one gospel. There is only one good story. There's only one headline for good news. It's Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. That, that is the good news. There's four accounts of the gospel. Picture it this way. Well, I'm going to try to preemptively answer this question. Have you ever seen a car accident? I mean, not, not after it just happened. I mean, see it happen. And let's say it was in an intersection. And let's say there were people standing on each of the four corners of the intersection. Eyewitnesses to the accident that just occurred. Somebody ran a red light. Somebody, you know, wasn't paying attention. Whatever. Whatever the case. They, they have an accident in the middle of the intersection. And there's people on each of the four corners. And they each have a different perspective. Now, they saw the same event. And they observed the same actions and reactions. But each of them will tell a little different story about those events. They were, were stationed at different places. Even though they saw the same event, they will have a different personality. They'll have a different viewpoint. They may have inclinations that cause them to major on different things that someone else would major on. And maybe they think something is vitally important that this person may have thought, well, nah, it's just a minor detail. You see what I'm saying? Four gospel writers describing the same events, three of whom were very closely related to the same viewpoint as far as the, the events of Jesus, His life and His ministry. John's gospel is a little unique, but all four are describing the same person, the same story, inspired to write in different ways and to major on different details. Does that make sense? Not in conflict. Not four different stories. One story. Four perspectives. So this is Matthew's perspective on Jesus Christ, the Messiah, as inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. So let me read for us today... Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. I want to make some, 
uh, notes and, and point out some things to us, and then we'll talk about why this is so vitally important to us and why it was included in our scriptures to read today. Here's what the Word of God says, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. And Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, and Amon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihu. Abihu the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok the father of Achim. And Achim the father of Eliad. Eliad was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar the father of Mathan. And Mathan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Father, I pray today that you would open our eyes and our hearts to the truth in this word and help us to see the importance of it. And as you show us these things, Lord, I pray you would help us to be obedient to you as you speak to our hearts very clearly today in Jesus' name. Amen. Now this seems like a lot of unnecessary information, right? Why on earth do we need to know about all these generations of people Whose father was whose? What they did? Why they're included in this list? Well, first of all, I want to say a little side note about how God does some cool things that we don't necessarily realize. The numeric value of the name David is 14. Did you notice anything in verse 17? The number of generations from Abraham to David are 14. 
The number of generations from David to the exile of Babylon was 14. The number of generations from the exile to the Messiah, 14. Who is Jesus referred to as when he, when he come? One of the names for him, the son of David, the rightful king of the Jews. So I want to take a moment and just look at these three sections. The first generation from Abraham to David, then from David to the exile, then from the exile to the Messiah. And I want to end with showing us some very important applications for us. Because we can read the history, we can see the significance of some of the names and why they're included. But we need to see not just the significance of their names and why they're in the list. We need to know why that's important to us, how that applies to us today. First of all, the first six verses. The generation from Abraham to David. The name Jesus is very important because in verse 1, this is the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the Hebrew name Yeshua, means the Lord saves. His name means salvation. The word Messiah in Greek is Christ or Christos, means anointed one. The son of David refers back to Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 7 as a messianic prophecy. The son of Abraham goes back to Genesis 12, the covenant that God made with Abraham through your line, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Genesis 22, when Abraham sacrifices Isaac or intends to at the request of the Lord and then he's provided a sacrifice. And then over in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, which I'm going to read for you, Galatians 3.16 says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, and he does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. This is a, a profound truth about the genealogy of Jesus, that He is the Messiah, He is the Son of David, He is the Son of Abraham, He's God. Jesus is the King. And this is a, a very um, appropriate way for Matthew to demonstrate this to this Jewish audience. He goes through these generations from Abraham and he lists some names. He starts with Isaac, Jacob, Judah and his brothers. That's the twelve tribes. And he goes through and lists all these sons. But I want you to notice three names in particular. He lists Tamar. He lists Rahab. He lists Ruth. Now, why would he do that? In this context, in this civilization, in this culture, why would he do that? Especially, let's just say, someone like Rahab with the reputation of Rahab. You know how she's referred to in Scripture every single time her name is mentioned? Rahab, the harlot. Not just Rahab. But you remember who she was. She was the one who hid the spies. She was the one who God made a promise to, to save her and her family. And so Rahab was mentioned in the genealogy. Tamar was mentioned in the gene genealogy. Ruth was mentioned in the genealogy. They are important because Jesus didn't come just for those who the world thinks are important. Jesus came for those who the world might cast out who the world might neglect. Jesus came for those who were lowly and neglected. Jesus came for you and me. 
not just the superstars. David the king, D.A. Carson would write, the word king with David would evoke profound nostalgia and arouse this eschatological hope, this end-time hope in first century Jews. Matthew makes the royal themes explicit. The King Messiah has appeared and His name is Jesus. Moving on to the next section, verse 7 down to verse 11. This generation from David to the exile to Babylon. Solomon is mentioned. Now look who else is mentioned. By Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Anybody know that story? King David, the adulterer, the murderer. And yet, what did God call him? A man after my own heart. You think God can't use you today? You think God doesn't have time for you today? You think, well, I've, I've done some things in my past. I mean, you don't know all I've done. Yeah, well, God does. And yet, He calls. He calls your name. He can use you. Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah, this fact that's so interesting about Matthew's genealogy is the inclusion of these four Old Testament women. The first three we mentioned already, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, and now uh, Bathsheba. All these women, as well as most of the men in the list, were questionable in some way. Tamar and Rahab were prostitutes. Ruth was a foreigner from Moab. And Bathsheba had committed adultery with David. Matthew may have included these women in order to emphasize that God's choices in dealing with people are all about His grace. Perhaps also He included these women in order to put Jewish pride in its place. You see, just because you have a certain last name or you're from a certain family, or you grew up in a certain part of the country, or you grew up with certain advantages that others don't have, that does not make you special. Especially not in God's eyes. You know what makes you special in God's eyes? He knit you together in your mother's womb. His eyes saw your unformed substance. He knows every day that was ordained for you before one of them comes to be. That's my king. I wonder if you know him today. The generations from David to the exile. They're all interesting names. They all have their own history. They all have their own details. Many of them, as we even discussed this past Wednesday night, many of these... Uh, Men in leadership were evil. And the Bible tells us so. Remember Wednesday night we looked at Second Chronicles from 33 to 36, the end of the Hebrew Old Testament. And you remember out of the seven kings, the last seven kings mentioned in Second Chronicles, six of the seven were evil. Over and over and over. Uh, and here's the names. You see them? Hezekiah, Manasseh, Amon, all did evil in the sight of the Lord. The last one, Josiah, was the, the one bright spot in that list. Jeconiah and his brothers were the last ones listed at the time of the exile to Babylon. 
But the important nugget for us to hang on to here, all the way through these names, these generations, you think you don't matter? Does anything in your heart or mind cause you to doubt your value in the eyes of God? It shouldn't. It shouldn't. Because your value is attached to one historical event. Jesus Christ came to this earth. He humbled Himself and took the form of a servant. He became obedient to death, even the death of a cross. One, because He was being obedient to the plan of the Father. Two, because of His great love and mercy and grace poured out to sinners like you and me. You have unquestionable value. And it's found in the fact that Jesus Christ would come and give His life for you. The third section here in the generation from the exile to Jesus, verses 12 through 16, it starts with, uh, a name, Shealtel, and goes through Zerubbabel and all these other leaders and, and important, notable people in history. And you see where it ends? Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born. There was nothing special about Joseph. He was a carpenter. He was a modest man. What about Mary? Mary was a teenager, pregnant out of wedlock, about to be disgraced and excluded because of her situation, because no one believed what was happening. Mary was going to be outcast, and yet she was put in a position to be the earthly mother of the Son of God, the Son of David the son of Abraham. Jesus, who is called Christ, the Messiah. So when we get to this point, we notice the significant details, the 14 generations, the name of David and its numerical value. We see the names of those who were included in the list. We see how God orchestrated this grand ancestry to lead to the day when His Son would assume human form and make His appearance on the earth to fulfill the redemptive plan that had been in place since before time began. The conclusion of the generations. D.A. Carson writes, the simplest explanation, the one that best fits the context, observes that the numerical value of David in Hebrew is 14, and by this symbolism, Matthew points out that the promised son of David, the Messiah, has indeed come. We celebrate this time of year not because we enjoy necessarily all the decorations and the gift giving and the family get-togethers and the food. and Well, we do enjoy the food, that is true. We celebrate this time because it reminds us of Jesus. 
That's the most important reason we celebrate. It should be the most important reason we celebrate. So, even though Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience, both Jews and Gentiles alike have to face the fact that the promised Savior has appeared. We do have help. We have hope. We can find forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. All the prophecies of the Old Testament concerning the Messiah have been fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth. As the Apostle Peter would later confess when he was asked who Jesus was, who do you say I am? He said, you're the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You remember what Jesus told him? He told him he was blessed for saying that because... Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to Him, but my Father in Heaven. The truth of Christ is something we're shown and given in a divine way. Jesus Himself would tell the Jews, specifically the religious leadership in John chapter 5 and verse 39, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that testify about Me and yet you're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. What a terrible commentary to read the Bible and study the Bible for years and years and years and never meet the one who is talking about. So, let's do a little personal application. Think about your personal exposure to this story. Is today the first day you've ever been in a church? Is today the first day you've ever opened a Bible or heard one read? Is today the first day you've ever joined in prayer? Is today the first day you've ever sung a song about Jesus? Now think back. How long has it been? How familiar is the story? Is it so familiar that you could have missed the main character? Is Jesus the reason for your celebration? Or is it all the other things? Is it the lights and the tree and the gift giving and the fellowship and the food and Music. I have a, uh, a friend who was in the youth group when I was just starting out, even volunteering in church ministry. And she was in the youth group at that time. She was a teenager. And it's still of this mindset. She believes that you should begin your Christmas celebration and your decorations uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of July. In August, you know, just like the whole, you know, I think she'd celebrate Christmas all year. But, but why? Is it about Jesus? This is just the beginning of the story. This is just setting the stage for what's to come. This is the foundation. Where did Jesus come from? Is He the rightful King? Matthew says, yeah, yeah, He is. He's the rightful King. 
here's the proof of his genealogy. Here's where he came from, from an earthly sense. So he is the Messiah. He is the rightful king. But the question is not about Jesus and his history. That's established. That's a non-negotiable. What's the real question for us today and in the days ahead? What's the question we have to answer? It's how will we respond to Jesus? Jesus is who He is. That's never going to change. Jesus is God. He came to this earth, earth in flesh and He fulfilled the redemptive plan of God and He saves sinners. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, which we'll read next Sunday. You'll call His name Jesus because He will save His people from their sins. Not might save His people, not try to save His people. He will save His people from their sins. He's the Messiah. The question is, how will we respond to that? There's three groups that we'll see throughout Matthew's Gospel. So I want to just do a little brief foreshadowing here as we conclude this part of Matthew's Gospel and look forward to the rest. David Platt wrote some interesting observations about the three groups of people who encountered Jesus throughout this Gospel account. And they each respond in different ways. First, you have the religious leaders. They completely reject Jesus. They're jealous in many ways. They're concerned about a threat to their own position. And so we're going to see attacks on Jesus' character and attacks on His claims throughout this Gospel by people who pridefully choose to deny that Jesus is the rightful King. That's the religious crowd. What about the rest of the crowds? The general public. The crowds of people, they don't completely reject Jesus. They casually observe Jesus. This is the place where many church attenders, probably even many church members, find themselves today. They're content to observe Jesus, to give Him token allegiance. They add Him as part of their lives. These are people who do good things and are actively involved in the church, maybe in different ways. They are in some way or another associated with Jesus. And yet one day they will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in Your name and do many miracles in Your name? And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. What a terrifying thought. The third group is the disciples. The disciples did not reject Jesus, nor did they just observe Jesus. The disciples choose to unconditionally follow Jesus. Let me put this on the screen, what David Platt said about the disciples. In a day when nominal Christianity and lazy discipleship are rampant in America and in many places around the world, 
Will you rise up and say to Jesus, You are my King. And because you're King, there are no conditions on my obedience to you. I'll follow you wherever you lead me. I'll give you whatever you ask of me. I will abandon all I have and all I am because you are King and you are worthy of nothing less. This is the heart of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus the Christ. So how will we respond to Jesus? The truth about Jesus is settled. He is who He says He is. He does what He says He will do. He keeps every promise. He is faithful and true in every situation. He always has been. He always will be. The question is, how will we respond to Jesus? See, we're about to begin a new calendar year in just a few weeks. It's hard to believe. And with this new beginning, you know what, many times, what, what happens, uh, some will make resolutions, New Year resolutions. My prayer for us today is that we would not make a New Year's resolution. That we would not follow the world and try in vain to keep or make some new habit. My prayer is that we would come and follow Jesus Christ. That we would recognize Him as the Messiah. That we wouldn't have a New Year's resolution. We'd come to Jesus and have a new life. One that's eternal. One that's abundant. One that's blessed. Blessed by our Savior. So come, come to Jesus today. You may say, well, I've already come to Jesus. Well... Are you as close as you want to be? Because I found in my life, and I think this is true for everyone, we are as close to Jesus as we want to be. Because if, if I feel far Thank away you for from listening Jesus, to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.